I was thinking a little bit this week that there are a lot of wonderful things about living where we do. One of our favorites as a family is that being so close to Phoenix, when it gets real hot down there in the summer, the hotel prices are often cut in half. And there's some wonderful resorts down there. You've probably done what we do. You find those half-off deals and, and you go to a hotel with four pools and, and waterfalls and, and you just enjoy yourself. You ever done that? But one of the times we went down to one of those resorts, I'll never forget. Our, our boys were little at the time. They're eight and six now. They're probably like six and four or something when we went down. And we went to get some ice for our room. I forget which boy it was, but man, they loved that ice maker. <laughs> to them, that was like the, the coolest thing. <laughs> and this whole four-star resort was the ice maker. And I think if we would have let them, they would have spent the whole three days playing with the ice maker. <laughs> and they would have missed out on all these pools and, and waterfalls and all the other things that were there to enjoy. As I thought about that, I thought, man, where I want to go this morning is I believe what my boys would have done if we had allowed them to do is all too often what we do in our Christian lives. As someone reminded me this morning, God doesn't only offer us forgiveness and eternal salvation. He says He offers us His inheritance. Not only that, He wants to use us in powerful ways to show His glory and, and bring His deliverance to this world to help set people free with the good news of the gospel. To go out there and do mighty things in our words and our, our actions, but a lot of us are hanging out at the ice maker. I'm forgiven. Let's just get through this life. I want to talk today about exploring all that he has to offer. This passage is a challenge to me. We, we read Luke's account of this story, but today we're, we're going to primarily hang out in Mark's account of the story. We'll, we'll have it up here. It's going to be in Mark chapter 9. It's interesting. Luke was very sparse in his details on this story. You know, we know Luke gathered his information from witnesses. Mark, we believe, gathered his information directly from Peter. And if you read the Gospels enough, if you're like me, I think Peter must have been a talker. <laughs> and I can see Mark with his little, little writing tool to slow down, Peter, slow down. Because Mark just overflows with what happened in this story. And as he does, I'm, I'm thankful he does, because he brings out so much uh, that we can learn from. Big idea, though, I want us to leave here saying I'm not going to hang out in the ice room. I'm going to aim by faith to explore all that Jesus has for me, okay? Along the way, we're going to have some smaller points. Uh, the first one is this, that in this life, mountaintops don't last. How many of us know that? Even in the best things of this life, right? You think about your, your walk with the Lord. Those mountaintops don't always last, do they? Sometimes we go through, through trials and, and what feels like a dry spell where he feels distant. You think about marriage. I always tell people marriage is the second best decision I ever made after embracing Jesus. I love marriage. I love my wife. But anybody who's honest about marriage, the mountaintops don't last, do they? You go through mountaintops and, and you go through trials. Work. I heard about a valley at work this morning already. How many of you know that? There's times you go into work and you can't wait. There's other days you're like, oh, 
I hope this is my last. Mountaintops in life <laughs> don't last. But often what they do is they prepare us for the valleys. Why do I say this? Well, Mark 9.14 says, When they came to the other disciples, Luke says the next day when they came down from the mountain. Now, if you weren't here last week or you're not familiar with the chronology, we need to explain that the mountain they were coming down from was where something pretty amazing happened. Peter, James, and John went up on a mountain with Jesus. They were hanging out up there and Peter, James, and John are getting sleepy and the, the gospel accounts tell us that all of a sudden Jesus became as bright as lightning. Then Moses and Elijah appeared. And these disciples get to witness it. And, and the Father speaks. It says, A cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. This moment was forever etched onto Peter's heart. I mean, how, how do you forget this? Years later, he would write in his letter that we know as 2 Peter, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. These weren't just stories. We were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We saw it. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Peter writes, We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven. When we were with them on the sacred mountain, you talk about a mountaintop experience. Maybe you can think of your own mountaintop experiences with Jesus where everything just seemed clear and, and you were aware of His power and His glory and it filled you with awe. That's what happened with these guys. This had come on the heels of another mountaintop experience. Jesus had just fed the crowd of 5,000 plus with a few loaves and fish. And Jesus asked his disciples, after many people left, because Jesus didn't come to be a political ruler, he came to be a savior, he asked them, you do not want to leave me too, do you? And Peter had answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What's powerful about this moment is that at least Peter, maybe Many of the other disciples were starting to get that this is more than just a powerful man. This Jesus we've been walking with and witnessing, He's God. You talk about mountaintop experiences, right? But now they're coming down. And as they come down, it's just such a picture. They're coming down off the mountaintop, literally and figuratively, they're coming down out of that awesome experience back into the world of hurts and pain, and need, and, and brokenness, and, and disillusionment. This was a common theme in Jesus' life. If, you, if you've read the accounts, you know right after His glorious birth, there was a murder attempt. Right after His baptism, where the Father spoke as well, He went into the desert for 40 days to be tempted, mountaintops and valleys. Warren Wiersbe says the Christian life is a land of hills and valleys. And one day, a disciple can move from the glory of heaven to the attacks of hell. Ever been there? It could change so quickly. And yet he says this, he says, We dare not stay on the glorious mountaintop when there are battles to fight below. 
We're here for a reason. We're here to be part of those, those battles. So they walk into a situation. It says, when they came to the other disciples, the other nine, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. You can imagine after this awesome experience coming down and hearing all this yelling and fighting and anger and, oh, back to the real world. That's how it feels sometimes when you come back from vacation, right? That first day back at work, you're like, oh, yeah, whew. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it was like that yesterday. I asked, I asked the girl, this girl I ran into that we knew. I was like, man, were they giving away free chips or what? This place is packed. <laughs> they, they felt this after this peaceful, powerful, awesome experience. Wow, here's all this arguing. Verse 15, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. Now we know based on what we're about to read, the reason they may have been in awe of him showing up at that moment is they needed help. (laughs) Talk about a timely arrival. But Jesus says, what are you arguing with them about to his nine disciples? They didn't answer. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. And I want you to imagine if this was your boy, right? Matthew says it was epilepsy. They all tell us that a demon was involved. This does not mean that in every case of epilepsy a demon is involved, but in this particular case, there was a demon involved. He's possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. Maybe you've had a child or a loved one with, with painful symptoms to watch repeatedly. Maybe you get, can get a taste of what it would be like to watch what Luke tells us is this man's only son, repeatedly tormented by the evil one. John Grasmick says, The purpose of demon possession is not mere sickness or insanity, but a desperate, satanic attempt to distort and destroy God's image. In a man. Can you imagine watching that battle with your own child repeatedly? But he went on to say, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. And what I thought about here, what's going on is Jesus' disciples and the scribes are standing here arguing with each other while Satan. And his demons are destroying a life. They're standing there arguing. Satan is at work in our world to destroy lives. To take them to hell with him. To keep them from belief. To, to, to tempt them into all sorts of oppression and, and captivity. Pornography. Alcohol. Drugs. It's all around us. And if we're not careful, like those religious leaders and Jesus' own disciples, we can become guilty of the same thing. While all this is going on, what are we doing? We're just arguing. We're just arguing with the unbelievers. We're just arguing with each other. Meanwhile, God's saying, look, there are people being destroyed by Satan. I did not leave you here to argue your life away. I left you here to bring my saving message to those who need it. Can you imagine the fathers 
watching these arguments like, can anybody help me? Can anyone help me? I wonder if there are people in the world that sometimes look at us when we're guilty of the same thing, saying, is there anybody here who, who can help me? Anybody got some good news, some, some power? He said, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. And Jesus is going to go on to say the reason they could not was their, their unbelief. And I want to talk about unbelief for a minute. Okay? The impact of unbelief. First, I want to talk about the impact of unbelief on us as God's children. The impact of unbelief in our lives, what, what it does is it keeps us from partnering with God to do great things in this world. I don't want to get to the end of my life, look back and say, wow, what could God have done in and through me if I had just taken Him at His word? If I had believed he said, I asked your disciples to drive out the Spirit, but they could not. Now this is interesting because you'll remember a couple weeks ago in Luke chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus had called the twelve together. It says He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons. He had given them the authority. And when they got back from that trip, Mark 6.13 says, They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But Jesus had given them the power, and they had actually done it. But their unbelief here kept them from doing it again. And I read that, I'm like, man, what are the things that God has promised to me, to you, and given us the authority to do, and maybe we've even been a part of it in the past, but today, where I live right now, because I don't believe, I can't do it anymore. What are we missing out on that God says, I want to partner with you on? So it causes us to miss out on being used to partner with God for great things. It has an effect on Jesus too. The effect on Jesus is that it deeply distresses our Savior. Did you know your unbelief can impact Jesus? I mean, that He would submit Himself to that in the first place. That's crazy love, but... Look how it impacts him here. Verse 19, he says, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Can you feel the, the weight on Jesus? Man, he spent all eternity with his Father. He just came down off the mountaintop and he's done all these things in front of his disciples. And they don't believe. Man with the last name of France says, Jesus accepted that he will be rejected by the official leadership of Israel, but to find himself let down, even by his own disciples, evokes a rare moment of human emotion on the part of the Son of God. I mean, you hear those words, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? <laughs> Warren Wiersbe says, those are words you expect to hear from an overworked kindergarten teacher. <laughs> you know, they're very real and painful words. But Jesus is feeling them because of the unbelief. Luke says, unbelieving and perverse generation, which means that it's not for lack of information. These disciples especially had seen so much. 
He says it's perverse because it's a moral failure to believe. You've got all the evidence. There's just something in your will that will not submit to the facts that have been in front of you. So he's got this deep emotion. Gundry says that the reason Mark included this is he probably wanted his own audience to take a warning against unbelief in Jesus. Think about those original readers. I think it would extend to us as well. We don't want to fall into this same camp. And yet, if you're here with me today, and you're real about your life in in any way, shape, or form, you'll admit that we, we do live there at times, don't we? We do have a slowness to believe, despite all that we've seen of Jesus, all that we've read about Him. We see it in the lives of the disciples. In a lot of ways, their slowness comes as an encouragement. Okay? Because we can read their experiences and say, yeah, I relate to that. Listen to just a couple that had happened just before this incident. You know, they've seen numerous miracles, and the crowd of 5,000 plus shows up, and their first response isn't, Jesus, let's, let's do something special. Let's send them away. We have only five loaves and two fish. What, what good is this among so many? It's Peter sinking. He walks after walking on the water. He's already taken some steps. All right, if there's ever reason for faith, I'm walking on the water. But the waves come and, and he starts to sink. And P- Jesus says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Shortly after that, Jesus tells him a relatively simple parable. And Peter asks him to explain it. And, Jesus says, are you still so dull? (laughs) This isn't just me saying they were slow and and we're slow. Jesus, are you still so dull? (laughs) You ever sensed him saying that to you? I have. The feeding of the 4,000. This is after he's already fed 5,000 plus. A second time a large crowd shows up. Their, their statement, where could we get enough bread in this place to feed such a crowd after he's already done it once? Peter, Jesus tells him his plan for salvation. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer. Peter says, never, Lord. <laughs> this is not going to happen to you. And even on the recent transfiguration, Peter sees these guys on the mountain and his first response is, Let's build three shelters that we might stay here, which might not mean a lot to us, except Luke tells us Peter didn't know what he was saying. <laughs> we, we read these accounts, and, and uh, we look at their unbelief and their, their growing faith, and we say, Jesus, thank you that even though that weighed on you greatly, and our unbelief weighs on you, you persisted with them, and you persist with us. What, what an awesome encouragement. So it impacts us, it it impacts Jesus. Our unbelief can impact others as well, I believe. I believe that it's possible their inability because of their unbelief to cast out this demon is what fueled the argument with the scribes. I don't know that for certain. We don't know for sure what was going on there, but Perhaps the scribes were looking saying, you guys don't have any power. You say you got all this power from Jesus and you can't even set this boy free. It's 
possible that their unbelief fueled that argument. Alexander McLaren said this about the scribes' unbelief, and, and as he went to look at it, he looked at our world today. We're, we're surrounded by unbelief, all right? And often it can have an effect even on us. He says, we live in an atmosphere of hesitancy and doubt, of scornful rejection of Jesus' claims, of contemptuous disbelief in anything supernatural. We cannot but be conscious that to hold to Jesus Christ as the incarnate God is to expose ourselves to the contempt of so-called advanced and liberal thinkers. What happens all too often is the unbelief around us begins to affect us. I think what Jesus would say to us is it ought to be the other way around. As we believe in Jesus and His power works through us, that ought to impact the unbelievers that are around us. Not the other way around. I think it had an impact on the father himself, the father of this boy. All right, presumably he had come to Jesus' disciples with faith. He, he's, he's looking for a deliverance. He brings his boy to these guys with faith that they can do it. But I believe it's their inability because of their unbelief that began to cause him to question. It says they brought him. When the Spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. That's a wrestling term. It threw this boy down to the ground when it saw Jesus. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, How long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. And here's where, where I think you can see his faith was shaken a bit, perhaps by the disciples' lack of belief and inability. He says, But if, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. You see, where he may have come with the strong faith, perhaps it was shaken because of their inability. And now he's saying what? If you can. If you can. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor and martyr who stood up to Nazi Germany and defended the Jews, said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. I read this passage and I'm personally challenged with the question, does my life as a Christian make unbelievers question the reality of God? Is it sometimes the opposite way? Did they bring this man to this if you can mentality? Jesus looks at him and says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. One of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible is right here in verse 24. I've prayed it many times in my life. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Max Lucado wrote about this prayer. In his book, He Still Moves Stones. Maybe some of you have read that years ago. He said, we're tempted to wait to pray until we know how to pray. Good thing this man didn't make the same mistake. He wasn't much of a prayer, and his wasn't much of a prayer. He even admits it. I do believe. Help me to believe more. This prayer isn't destined for a worship manual. 
No psalm will result from his utterance. His was simple. No incantation or chant, but Jesus responded. He responded not to the eloquence of the man, but to the pain of the man. Some of what I want to bring out here in this simple prayer, maybe you've prayed that before. You're, You're at a crossroads praying. I believe in you, Jesus, but if I'm honest, there's some unbelief here. Here's the deal. The greatness of faith's object is more important than the greatness of the faith itself. The greatness of faith's object is more important than the faith itself. I I think about it like this. A a door is how you enter into a house. Let's picture for a moment faith is that door. You can take that door and put it on any house you want. And it will open. You can put that door on a shack and go through. You know, and many of us do. We put our faith in things much less than Jesus. And we believe in Him and we find ourselves living in spiritual shacks. Or you can take that door of faith and put it on Jesus. Who, with the building metaphor, is a sprawling mansion with limitless rooms. The door is not the big deal. A door is a door is a door. It's what the door leads to. And that's what I see in this man's humble prayer. It's not the size of his faith. It's because of who it's in. We see what happens here. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. The beauty of this simple prayer and the powerful answer that Jesus gave it ought to encourage you and I as we wrestle the same battles that man did between unbelief and belief is this. Christian faith is only possible with the help of the one who is its object. You understand that? It's okay to come with Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe in you, but I'm struggling here. Help my unbelief. And he will help. He will help. He can answer those humble prayers. I want to look at this last part of this, the little faith of the disciples. And I want to talk about the untapped potential of the disciples and us. All right, these disciples watch this, and now they're, they're confused. Because after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And the we is emphatic in the original language. They're looking and saying, hey, why couldn't we do that? We tried. They probably even thought they believed. He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Matthew adds to this, in Matthew 17, the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And I I read that and I'm like, how small their faith must have been because we saw the conflicted faith of this man. That already wasn't a, 
an amazing faith, was it? It was like, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe that's like the, the mustard seed, which is the smallest seed in the garden. These guys who had been walking with Jesus didn't even have that much. And I think about how did they get there? How did they get to that place? And I think, too, they probably expected another answer. You know, they come to Jesus and want, want to know why they couldn't do it. And they're, like us, probably thinking the problem is elsewhere, right? Oh, it's this. It's that. It's those people. It's this situation. It's this boss. It's the answer is always somewhere else. I don't know that they like that he said, <laughs> because you have so little faith, the, the answer's inside of them. Alexander McLaren says, Nowhere else in heaven or in earth or hell, but only in us, does the reason lie for our breakdown if we have broken down. Not in God, who's ever with us, ready to make all grace abound in us, whose will is that all men should be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The breakdown is not in the gospel which we preach, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's not in the demon might which has overcome us, for greater is he that is in us that is in the world. We are driven from all their explanations to the bitterest and yet the most hopeful of all that we only are to blame. We'll come back to how is that hopeful at the end of our message. But right now it probably tastes a little bitter as we process that. Wow. Could it really be my lack of belief? We know a couple of things of how they got there. One is Jesus said you didn't pray. You didn't pray. And prayer is the key way we express our constant dependence on God. All right? If we don't pray, bottom line is we don't believe our lives depend on God's power. All excuses aside, because if I believe my life depends on God's power, I will pray. They weren't praying. He said, this kind only comes out by prayer. Maybe they relied on previous experience. You know, they're thinking, hey, we went out on this trip. We did this before. Surely you can do it again. And it, they just went into cruise control. Sometimes we do that, don't we? We think of a previous season in our lives where God used us, and we just put it in cruise control. We're not praying. We're not dependent on His power. We've done this before. We got this. That can bring us to the same place they were. Charles Ryrie says, Experience can teach us, but it cannot empower us. I think about that one right there, and I think about, like, imagine this scenario. I go to a, a car dealership. I go to Lamb, Lamb Nissan, and I buy a new car. And I drive off the lot, and, and I drive it for like a week, and, and it gets down to empty. And it, it's not starting. I'm sitting there. Come on. So I, so I rent a taxi, and I take it to Lamb Nissan. I say, this is a lame car. I drove it for one week, and doesn't work anymore. What kind of car is this? What are they going to say? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> You're an idiot. Take that thing to a gas station and fill it up again. <laughs> right? But I think sometimes that's how we live our Christian lives. We look at some moment in the past like, yeah, I connected to God I, that first time I believed in Him or that season where I was really connected in prayer. And we somehow expect that that those prayers back then and that faith back then is going to get me through today. That's not the way God works. He calls it our, our daily bread, right? 
This is a constant, daily, today kind of dependence on God, not on just previous experience. Maybe they just relied on themselves. When we get there sometimes too, that's related to the first one, not praying, hey, I got this, I'm good. But Jesus himself, fully God and fully man, while he lived here, showed his constant dependence on his Father by staying connected in prayer. If he did it, surely we must. One more possibility I want to throw out there. Some of the writers that looked at this talked about the possibility of sin in their lives. We know these guys often argued about who was the greatest. (laughs) That was one of their favorite pastimes. So maybe these nine down in the valley are thinking, man, Peter, James, and John get all the good stuff, you know? They saw him raise that little dead girl a few months ago, and now they get to go up on the mountain with him, and who knows what all they experienced up there, but he left us here. How dare he do that? You know, maybe there's a little disillusionment, a little bitterness with Jesus. And when we get bitter and disillusioned in that kind of mindset, that sinful mindset, we're not going to spend much time praying to him, are we? Because we're bitter at him. Don't know. These are all possibilities. Some of them we know. They did not pray. Maybe they relied on previous experiences. Maybe they relied on themselves. Maybe there was sin. But for whatever reason, they couldn't do it. I look at this and I say, man, what am I missing out on today? God, that you want to do in and through and around my life because I don't believe, because I don't pray, because I rely on myself, because I've quenched your spirit with sin in my life. What am I missing out on in my marriage, in my church, in my community, in my world? Now there's the bitter part, but the hopeful part is, wow, if that's really the issue, and the man in our own story went to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief, and Jesus did. Here's the hope. He can do the same for you and I. He can answer that that humble prayer and bring us again to the place where we are walking in dependence on Him. These These very disciples here, we know they... They went on throughout the book of Acts to to turn the world upside down. Bold as lions because of what Jesus did in them. The faith He enabled in them. As I think about the demon-possessed boy who was set free, I don't know how his story ends. But I do think of a story of a a modern-day demon-possessed man. I, I had lunch two weeks ago in Prescott with David Joannis. Many of you may know him. A missionary in China has been there for 20 years since he was a teenager. So he was sharing with me about what God's doing over there. He shared that there's a team of 80 leaders now, 80 leaders who 20 years ago didn't even know Jesus, but they're 80 leaders that are helping to spread the word and, and disciple. And he told me about one of those leaders. He's a young man who's like 25 years old. And when they first met him a few years ago, he was demon-possessed. And they, they encountered him with the power of Jesus and cast that demon out in the power of Jesus. And this young man came to embrace Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And the man has a, a leg injury that, that he has to this day that requires him to walk, I believe, with a crutch, David was telling me. But he said, the thing about this young man 
So they go into all sorts of remote villages, up hills, through the thickest jungle. And he says, anytime we go there with this young man, all I see is his back because he's always at the front of the pack. He can't wait to get to a new village to tell them what Jesus did for him and what Jesus could do for them. If Jesus can turn a demon-possessed young man's life around that way, if he can turn these fearful, half-hearted disciples into to lions that turn their world upside down, he can surely do the same today. The same Holy Spirit that filled and empowered them lives in us if we believe in Jesus. I want to close with a prayer that Alexander McLaren wrote. May it become our own. He said, O Lord, our strength, we have not wrought any deliverance on earth. We have been weak when all thy power was at our command. We have spoken thy word as if it were an experiment. We have let go of thy hand and lost thy garment's hem from our slack grasp. We have been prayerless and self-indulgent. Therefore thou hast put us to shame before our foes, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth. Stir up your strength and come and save us. Then will the last words that he spoke on earth ring out again from the throne. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Father, I believe that's the heart cry of many in this room. We have seen what can happen when your power intersects our lives in this world. Yet if we're honest, there are many of, of us in this room, myself included, that, that want more. And, and we've missed out because of unbelief. We've missed out because we don't pray. We've missed out because we've made it more about what we can do than what the Almighty Son of God who promised to be with us can do through the power of His Holy Spirit. So if any of you are with me on that, I pray that just take a moment right now, let's confess that to God. Just quietly where you're at. Let's confess that unbelief, that self-reliance, that reliance on the past. Now let's take a moment together to ask Him for the ability to believe, to partner with Him again, to see people saved, to see them set free, to see them baptized and discipled, to go out into this world in power or bring evidence that God is alive and well and wants to save them as well. Jesus, it's in your awesome and holy name, the name by which that demon was forced to leave and never come back that we pray. Amen.